Welcome everyone, this is Jorge Fascinetti, and you're listening to another exclusive podcast from Pituitary World News. Today's podcast by Dr. Lewis Blevins is on the post-operative evaluation and management of patients with hypercorticinism. And while this podcast is directed primarily to physicians, we encourage everyone to listen to it. Here's Dr. Blevins. Good morning. This is Dr. Lewis Blevins of Pituitary World News. Today I want to talk to you about my approach to the evaluation and management of patients with hypercortisolism who've undergone surgery. I'll focus mostly on ACTH-producing pituitary adenomas, but I'll also comment on patients with ectopic uh, ACTH hypersecretion and adrenal disorders that produce cortisol. There are many different ways to approach these patients. I would hazard a guess that if you talked with 10 pituitary endocrinologists, you'd get 10 different uh, um, recommendations about how to proceed uh, evaluating the post-operative patient, managing their steroids, etc. There's some literature on the topic. What I'm going to do today is to share with you how I do it, and it's based on uh, just a, a lifetime, 31 years to be exact, of managing patients with hypercortisolism uh, both before and after surgery, evaluating recurrences, etc., and the approach that I use is not only incorporating the art of medicine learned by doing uh, and papers that uh, have been published, but also discussion with colleagues, and I'll mention a few of those throughout this podcast. I'm not saying it's the right way, but it's the right way for me to do it, and hopefully some of you out there listening will glean some information that you can find useful in your own practices. Let's talk briefly about the physiology of the disturbed hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, just so that everyone's on the same page. As you know, the secretion of ACTH by the pituitary gland is highly regulated. Uh, one of the influences is the negative feedback of cortisol at the level of the hippocampus, the hypothalamus, and the pituitary gland itself. Corticotrophin-releasing hormone and vasopressin both lead to the stimulation of ACTH secretion. The endorphin system is involved in probably putting some restraint on this particular system. There are other supertentorial factors that are also involved in driving the HPA axis. In a patient with an ACTH-producing pituitary adenoma, the dysregulated ACTH secreted by the tumor is driving cortisol production that is in turn suppressing uh, the axis and it suppresses the normal corticotroph cells. The normal corticotroph cells are also suppressed by cortisol production in the syndrome of ectopic ACTH hypersecretion and by cortisol-producing adrenal lesions such as adenomas and carcinomas bilateral nodular hyperplasia, etc. In this particular setting, whenever you remove the offending tumor, in the case of 
adrenal adenoma or carcinoma or ACTH producing tumor or an ectopic ACTH producing tumor. If you remove all of the neoplastic cells that produce ACTH, you're left with the setting where the corticotrophs in the anterior pituitary gland are usually suppressed. Uh, they're profoundly suppressed. And as a result, a patient will ultimately develop adrenocortical insufficiency after surgery. In many patients, this is immediate. In others, it takes a few weeks because it seems that the excess drive to the adrenal glands over a long period of time can result in adrenal hyperplasia that's semi-autonomous and may take four to six weeks for the cortisol levels to fall in some of these patients. In most, however, it's an immediate central adrenocortical insufficiency, we would call it. Cortisol levels fall dramatically. ACTH levels can't rise because of suppression of the corticotrophs. Now, this resulting central adrenocortical insufficiency has some significant implications for patients and for the healthcare providers taking care of these patients. Firstly, these patients have a, an absolute requirement for steroid supplementation and replacement. The adrenocortical insufficiency after successful surgery can last as long as 10 to 18 months. In fact, patients who have a shorter duration of uh, steroid requirement probably are experiencing recurrence of their underlying tumor. I have seen some patients with lifelong adrenal insufficiency in the setting of having otherwise normal pituitary functions, and these patients seemingly can never come off of steroids. I've tried in many of these patients for years, and they simply are not able to resolve their adrenal insufficiency. I've seen the same thing in chronic asthmatics treated with high-dose glucocorticoid hormones. It's believed that the feedback system that affects the hippocampus uh, is burned. These neurons just going to go apoptosis and are burned out. And you have to have these connections in the hippocampal uh, receptors uh, with fibers that pass to the hypothalamus to have a normal feedback system. And it might explain, uh, with the loss of these fibers, uh, why some of these patients never fully recover from hypercortisolism or glucocorticoid excess with medical therapy and require lifelong supplementation with uh, glucocorticoid hormones. But generally, say for a patient with pituitary adenoma, we expect recovery of their HPA axis within 10 to 18 months. Now, about 10% of patients with Cushing's, I think one study was as high as 20%, will develop hyponatremia after successful surgery. And it's believed that this is related to not only adrenal insufficiency, but perhaps relative adrenal insufficiency. It's important to keep this in mind uh, because hyponatremia can be a fairly strong indicator of the fact that the patient might require more glucocorticoids than you're administering. Hypotension is another um, important physical finding that can help you decide whether or not a patient has relative adrenal insufficiency or simply requires additional steroids to deal with a, an infection or some other medical stressful event in their lives. This is all complicated by what we know as steroid withdrawal. And this is a term that is 
been likened to narcotic withdrawal where people feel terrible as they're coming down on narcotic medications. And we've all seen these patients with Cushing's who undergo what we call steroid withdrawal. They have arthralgias, fatigue, uh, sometimes nausea. Um, they, they really feel very poorly and many of them will tell you that the cure is worse than the disease because of the way they feel. There are several theories that have been advanced regarding steroid withdrawal. Some people think it's a relative adrenal insufficiency and the physiology needs to adjust with uh, alterations in intranuclear glucocorticoid receptors, for example, uh, to account for the fact that steroid levels are down because they're probably suppressed and downregulated in a setting of hypercortisolism. Not fully, otherwise patients wouldn't get Cushingwood symptoms and signs. Um, others feel that the steroid withdrawal only comes when you have recovery of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And Joe McKenna, who is an endocrinologist in Dublin, Ireland, uh, subscribed to that theory and taught that. Uh, he felt that it was really when a patient was recovering and no longer needed steroids that they had withdrawal. I've always uh, differed in opinion from him noticing that many of my patients develop most of their steroid withdrawal symptoms probably two to three months after surgery when they're uh, still on replacement doses of steroids. And if you stopped those steroids, they would have undetectable cortisol levels. So the um, syndrome of steroid withdrawal might simply represent this readjustment and this, re, uh, this relative adrenal insufficiency that uh, Patients who have hypercortisolism or come off high-dose steroids are going to have to experience. I talked with David Orth, who's the, the, the great uh, adrenal and Cushing's expert from the you know, late 60s, probably through the 1990s and 2000s before he retired. And I asked him, uh, how do you manage this? What do you do for patients who have steroid withdrawal? The temptation is to give them extra steroids. They want to feel better. We know that extra steroids are going to help them. And his comment was, uh, and I'll quote him, uh, I'm going, I tell them they're going to hell and back. Uh, and that's what he felt about it. He, he did not believe that it was a good idea to treat these patients with extra steroids so that they felt better. And that's largely been my approach as a result of my experience in, in talking to him. I tend to tell patients to tough it out. We support them emotionally, physically. I encourage uh, physical activity, a good support system, and sometimes, um, especially those with myopathy, a good physical rehabilitation uh, program. When it comes to this notion of giving patients extra steroids after surgery to bring them down, so to speak, so their body can adapt and adjust to normal levels of glucocorticoid hormone, I tend not to subscribe to that. Uh, my surgeon, Dr. Sandeep Kunwar, likes to give patients about double the replacement therapy for the first month or six weeks or so, and then we go to replacement therapy. Uh, I, I allow that, but I would probably treat people with replacement therapy from the outset uh, because I think that when you give extra steroids, you're continuing the hypercortisolism. You're going to see further bone loss, problems with glycemic control, hypertension, etc. And it never made sense to me to give a patient more steroids uh, than is required physiologically after you've taken out a tumor that was causing hypercortisolism in the first place. I can't tell you the number of times in my career that I've seen people who have surgery, successful surgery for Cushing's, they're treated with steroids, 
and they come back to clinic with 15 pounds of weight gain six weeks after surgery, and it's because they've been given supraphysiological doses of steroids along the way by some other physician. Uh, sometimes they're more hypercortisolemic than they were prior to surgery as a consequence of the steroid replacement that they are receiving due to this notion of give extra steroids so the patient feels a little better. So my advice is if you're going to do it, do it for a very limited uh, period of time, maybe six weeks uh, at the most, eight weeks, but get the patient down to physiological doses as soon as you can because that's the only way they're going to recover their HPA axis function and ultimately come off of superphysiological doses of steroids. A quick reminder uh, that you are listening to Dr. Lewis Blevins, Pituitary World News co-founder and medical director of the California Center for Pituitary Disorders at the University of California, San Francisco, professor of clinical medicine and clinical neurological surgery. We continue with Dr. Blevins. Next, I want to talk a little bit about steroids and dose equivalents. When I was in my fellowship at Hopkins, the the textbooks said that a dose of dexamethasone of about 0.75 to 1 milligram daily was equivalent to adrenal output in a 24-hour period. Uh, equivalent doses were hydrocortisone 30 milligrams a day, hydrocortisone acetate 37.5 milligrams a day, methylprednisolone 9 milligrams a day, prednisone 7.5 milligrams a day. Those doses are way too high. Early in my career, I saw people become Cushingoid taking those sorts of doses of replacement I did some studies on congenital adrenal hyperplasia of the salt-losing variety when I was on faculty at Vanderbilt and published the results of those studies. And We took patients and managed their salt-losing disorder, uh, keeping their plasma renin activities in the, in the uh, normal range, but especially in the lower part of the normal range. And we determined the dose of dexamethasone necessary to sub- 17-hydroxyprogesterone levels to be about 0.44 milligram daily, which indicates to me that's a supraphysiological dose. Throughout my career, I've tried patients on varying doses of dexamethasone for replacement and found that the usual replacement dose average is about 0.25 to 0.375 milligram daily. Um, some patients require 0.5 milligram daily, some require uh, 0.125 milligram daily, or 0.25 milligram every other day, and those latter would be the the uh, patients who are slow metabolizers of the drug. The ones requiring high doses are probably the rapid metabolizers, which is about one-sixth of human beings, actually. In my view, and, and this is based on a number of studies looking at bone loss on prednisone therapy and, and other things over the years, uh, the standard replacement doses of these drugs are probably 20 milligrams of hydrocortisone daily in divided doses. Hydrocortisone acetates probably around 25 to 27.5 milligram daily. Prednisone probably 3 to 5 milligram daily. So if you're going to use one of these other steroids, think about uh, those as dose equivalents for treatment of adrenal insufficiency, really regardless of the cause. I have a preference for dexamethasone, and the reason being is that for the first probably five to seven years of my career, I used cortisone acetate and hydrocortisone, 
and uh, would give it in divided doses. And at one point I was even going uh, to this regimen of giving hydrocortisone three times a day. The half-life of hydrocortisone is 81 minutes. We don't know what the intranuclear half-life or clinical effect is, but what I was finding in my patients is that they would wake up in the morning and they were tired, and it would be middle of the morning before they felt well. They were taking their dose of medication in the morning. So, you know, they need time for uh, absorption of the medication and distribution to the to the nuclei of their cells to have their steroid effect. So most of the patients on short-acting steroid, it's the middle of the day before they're feeling well enough to carry out their normal daily routines and activities. And again, David Orth helped me understand this and, and shared with me his approach, which was to give dexamethasone at nighttime. Uh, the drug is absorbed and distributed while the patient's sleeping and levels peak around four to eight in the morning, mimicking the normal diurnal variation. And because of the longer half-life, it's a single daily dose therapy and levels are usually lower in most patients uh, beginning around five to six in the evening, mimicking the normal diurnal variation. So for about the past 20 years, I've used dexamethasone almost exclusively and found this is superior to using any of the shorter acting steroids that are commonly used. I do have some patients who take hydrocortisone. I have one or two who take prednisone uh, and those drugs were usually started by other physicians and the patients were doing reasonably well so that uh, we've just simply continued those. But my preference is dexamethasone. I also just parenthetically prefer dexamethasone in patients who are also going to be taking growth hormone because growth hormone accelerates the clearance of hydrocortisone but not dexamethasone. Uh, I've seen early in my career a couple of people who actually were doing fine on hydrocortisone, started growth hormone, and came in feeling worse. They didn't have any benefit of growth hormone. When I went up on their steroid or transitioned them to dexamethasone, they felt better. So clearly, and then, you know, interestingly, a year or two later, papers came out illustrating that that was an observation with uh, growth hormone replacement and hydrocortisone. You avoid that problem with dexamethasone, and I think it's probably the best uh, drug for steroid replacement in patients with adrenal insufficiency, regardless of the type or cause. So as I alluded to earlier, um, we often will treat patients with 0.25 milligram of dexamethasone twice a day for about four to six weeks, then we go to 0.25 milligram daily. If a patient has mild hypercortisolism coming out of surgery, maybe an adrenal adenoma or very mild hypercortisolism associated with ACTH producing tumor, I'll just start on 0.25 milligram at bedtime. I see them at six weeks. We determine whether the dose is high or low based on classic history and physical examination. Um, we usually have patients withdraw their medication for about uh, 24 to 36 hours and check in AM cortisol and ACTH and determine whether patients render disease free from their surgery or whether they have adrenal insufficiency and need to continue with treatment. Obviously, we look at the MRI based on the size of the tumor and what we see. We can predict who might have uh, residual disease or early recurrent disease and how to follow them uh, depending on the whole landscape of the data in front of us. But generally speaking, most patients um, at that time are continued on replacement therapy. We advise them about uh, stress dosing uh, and all of the things that they need to do to prevent steroid withdrawal or at least deal with that at this time and uh, make arrangements to follow them about every two months by having them hold steroids for 24 to 36 hours and getting ADM, cortisol, and ACTH levels. Now, most patients will tell you, yeah, if I hold the medicine for that long, I feel terrible, so I know I still have adrenal insufficiency, and they're usually right. 
about that uh, so that uh, you get uh, some historical information along with the laboratory data. The patients who tell me they're doing great and they feel fine uh, and not having steroid withdrawal symptoms or uh, can hold the medication and, and miss doses because people miss doses all the time, they admit to it, those are the ones that I think might have recurrent disease. Um, what we're doing in this post-operative phase is managing the adrenal insufficiency, treating with superphysiological doses if required based on hyponatremia, hy- uh, hypotension, uh, stressful illnesses, etc. But we're also watching to see if the patient has a recurrence and we're looking to see when we can stop the steroids because the HPA axis has recovered. So there's a lot of things truly going on in this post-operative period for these patients. Like I said, we check every two months, sometimes every three months. My approach is if the cortisol level at 8 a.m. is over 7, then I conduct a low-dose ACTH stimulation test. Uh, if they're normal, then uh, we will discontinue steroids. Uh, if they have a subnormal response and go greater than 12, that's about the time that I'll switch to the shorter-acting dose of hydrocortisone uh, just to sort of promote or facilitate better or more rapid recovery of the HPA axis. If they're under 12 on that stimulation test, I'll, con- I'll continue dexamethasone for another couple of months. Once I decide to transition in the hydrocortisone, I'll use 10 milligram in the morning and 5 milligram in the afternoon, which is probably a little subphysiologic, but it promotes recovery better. And after four to eight weeks, I'll go to 10 milligram daily. We continue to check the 8 a.m. cortisols withholding the medication. Uh, and uh, when they have a normal stimulation test, uh, going with the low-dose test over 18 micrograms per deciliter, will discontinue steroid supplementation. When it comes to long-term follow-up or the next steps uh, after a patient has discontinued steroids, I'll wait about two months and then I'll have them do two separate 24-hour urine cortisol excretion rates just to establish their baseline uh, cortisol excretion. Uh, and sometimes I'll recheck that every three to four months for the first year just to ensure that they're not simply recovering because they're recurring because some of these patients who have recurrent tumors, their cortisol levels just continue to march right on up. And you need to know in that first year or two whether that's happening or whether it was simply a recovery of the HPA axis with normal corticotrope function. Other tests that you can do to try to sort this out are the late-night salivary cortisol levels or uh, one milligram dexamethasone suppression tests. These tests are very sensitive at detecting which patients have recovery and have normal physiology versus recovery and have abnormal physiology indicative of recurrent disease. Um, Interestingly, the patients who have the recurrences will tell you, they'll come in, say, I'm having trouble sleeping at night and I've gained weight. You might find that their urine cortisol is in the high part of the normal range, whereas you established their baseline was maybe 25 or 30, now they're 45. And they'll usually have abnormal late-night salivary cortisol levels or an abnormal dexamethasone suppression test. So don't dismiss their symptoms and signs just because their cortisol level is normal. Turn over the other stones and you'll find the patients who are having the recurrence sooner rather than later. Now, I mentioned getting late-night salivary cortisol levels, and uh, I'll just share with you one of my approaches is to do a salivary cortisol profile. I have patients get two uh, salivary cortisol levels uh, upon awakening in an hour later, two in the afternoon, and then two uh, in the late evening at bedtime and about an hour prior to going to bed. 
And I look at that diurnal variation, you can see it very clearly. If a patient has a normal diurnal variation, uh, which is constituted by AM cortisol levels that are highest, afternoon values that are probably 20 to 50% of the morning values, and then the evening, uh, late evening values that are 5 to 10%, and certainly no more than 15% of the morning values, that's a normal diurnal variation. And if you see that, you, you can bet that the patient does not have recurrent disease. If that is disturbed and cortisol levels are erratic or flat throughout the day, that may be uh, laboratory error or collection error, but it could also be that a patient has uh, pathologic cortisol secretion, even if they're not hypercortisolemic, and you need to evaluate those patients further. Now, I want to conclude by saying that these patients with uh, Cushing's disease for sure, and then certainly with ectopic ACTH secretion and maybe some of those with adrenal disease require lifelong follow-up. The patients with Cushing's uh, especially require lifelong continued contact with an endocrinologist and periodic evaluation. I've seen a number of people who recur uh, with Cushing's after 14 to 15 years of initial successful surgery. This year I had the pleasure of uh, well, you might say that the unfortunate circumstance of taking care of a patient who I took care of as a fellow at Hopkins in 1991, who uh, looked me up on the net and found me to say that she was having a recurrent disease last year and came out to UCSF for surgery 28 years after her initial uh, operation. Um, I think her initial surgery was 1992. We operated on her in 2020 for recurrent hypercortisolism due to a recurrent pituitary adenoma. Her symptoms had probably been going on for a couple of years, so technically she recurred about 26 years after initial successful surgery. So this and many other patients indicate that you have to follow these uh, these folks for life uh, and uh, be in tune to their Uh, history, physical examination, and the dynamics of cortisol secretion in order to detect these recurrences as soon as possible to allow for early treatment. Well, that's all I have to say today on this particular topic. I'm sure there are things that I have left out. I'll be happy to take any questions. Feel free to write me either through Pituitary World News, Facebook, or um, at at uh, work at UCSF. Uh, If you have any particular questions or patients that I can help you with. Uh, Thanks for listening. Uh, Once again, Dr. Lewis Blevins of Pituitary World News. Have a wonderful day. You've been listening to another exclusive podcast from Pituitary World News. A quick reminder that if you'd like to make a donation, you can do so by going to pituitaryworldnews.org and clicking on Get Involved. Thank you. And thank you for listening.